Hello and welcome to Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Rees from Instinctive Partners in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today, I'm delighted to be joined in the Instinctive Studio by Paul Matthews, Head of Communications at Unilever, the global consumer goods giant based here in London, with brands stretching from Dove Soap to Hellman's Mayonnaise. Paul, welcome as ever. Great to see you here. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And also joining me today is my Instinctive co-host, Annabelle Duke, part of our Reinventing Responsibility Sustainability team. Annabelle, great to see you again. It's great to be back. Excellent. Paul, um, you've been with Unilever, I think, since 2008. Correct. Yep, that's right. Uh, But like me, you started out as a journalist. You were with The Mail, I think, and before that in local media. Just talk through your career path. How how do you go from the Exeter Express and Echo, which I think is where you started, That's right. To head of comms at Unilever. How did that happen? Well, uh, so I studied politics at Exeter University. And if I'm honest, when I graduated, I wasn't particularly sure I knew what I wanted to do. Um, And I think I pretty much picked up a copy of the Express and Echo uh, down on Exeter and thought that was interesting (laughs) uh, when I sort of tried my hand hand at journalism. And I did some work experience and, you know, one thing followed uh, another and I spent you know about four years of my career down in the southwest, and I have to say I, I really enjoyed it. Is that uh, where you're from? Uh, no, I'm from I'm from Mercer, Southampton. Okay, um, but I really enjoyed my yeah. kind of four years in um, kind of regional newspapers. It was actually an incredible training ground, I think, um, yeah. in terms of many of the skills and just kind of mindset that you need um, uh, for a successful career in communications. I yeah. think you can really you really benefit from. Uh, from uh, did you have a particularly harsh editor? Or, uh, they're yeah, often quite fierce local was, newspaper. Uh, when you're starting the world of work, yeah. um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, most most editors have kind of feel feel pretty fearsome. Um, it was a guy yeah. called Steve Hall, uh, but very, very talented editor. And uh, the newspaper when I was working down there under his leadership was actually very successful. Mm. You know, it was winning the mm. um, you know, newspaper, the regional newspaper of the years, and things like that. But yeah, I learned a lot from Stephen from my time uh, as a as a sort of local newspaper reporter um and then because the uh express and echo was part of the daily mail group they kind of had a scheme uh, where they sent some of those some of the, their reporters up into the daily mail. star reporters something like that um <laughs> although in my case it wasn't much of a start the daily mail uh it i was only there for um, mm. nine months to 12 to 12 12 months or so if i'm honest i didn't really enjoy it i kind of fell out to love with journalism um during my time at the mail uh and uh had to have a bit of a rethink as a result, so uh, I spent um, three or four years working for a kind of a, a travel PR agency, oh. a, a company called Brighter, which I think has since been uh, absorbed by another company. Okay. Um, and again, actually, I found the experience of working for an agency and this sort of versatility and this sort of how kind of dynamic working for an agency is. You know, um, sort of you know, obviously servicing lots of different clients, um, often with high demands uh, all at the same time, um, you know, was a sort of, again, another useful training ground. Um, and then uh, I d- I'll never really quite know how it happened, actually, um, or why it happened. Um, uh, but I got a call from a headhunter one day saying there's this, there's this press officer job going at Unilever 
um, would you be interested? And um, so I kind of went through that kind of recruitment process. And How old were you then? Sort of late twenties, early thirties. I must have been yeah, early, late late twenties, late twenties, late twenties ish. Yeah, 20s -ish. yeah. Um, and uh, it's one of the great mysteries I think of, of, of my of <laughs> in terms of my kind of career because i i never really understood how working in a sort of travel pr company um you know how that how that headhunter converted that to a kind of consumer goods environment um but i count myself very lucky that they did um because i've had a you know fascinating and very enjoyable kind of 15 years now um at unilever and was unilever the, the or is unilever the, the type of company that makes it easy to progress upwards uh, in, in, well, certainly in comms, for instance. Or... Yes, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. it's a, you can have a whole career at Unilever doing so many different things all under the same roof as, you know, the, the metaphorical roof. Um, and uh, the breadth of the challenges that we deal with at Unilever, um, the scale that we bring, that we have as a business, um, and the fact that, you know, Unilever is, you know, it's a marketing and communications company. So it's a business which I think, you know, is very attuned to the importance of, um, you know, reputation management, corporate affairs. You know, we spend a lot of time on sort of obviously the employee, engage, employee engage, engagement agenda too. And so you know, there's great breadth. You mentioned scale, um, yeah. which I think is a really interesting point because Unilever is a huge company. Um, um, you're, you're in 190 countries. You, you you serve th nearly three and a half billion people every day with your products, and I'm, all, I'm always impressed by the fact that 14 brands generate a billion plus euros of revenue each, yeah. uh, which shows you the the size and scale of the brands that you're dealing with, and we can reel them off: Purcell, Ben and Jerry's, Nor, Magnum. Uh, the list goes on. But scale alone, therefore, just must be a major headache for you running uh, communications and being responsible for communications and reputation. I mean, just tell us, first of all, how do you go about constructing and running the team, the yes. function yes, at that sort of scale? Uh, I probably shouldn't call it a headache. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, you're right, we are um, present in 190 uh, also countries i think there are only two or three where yeah. we are aware our brands aren't available there's um, a couple of states in uh, micronesia where i think it's just a bit too difficult for north um, korea. of our supply chain um and well one of the other ones is actually not not north korea but um uh, the vatican city uh so we'll never know if uh, the pope is a lover or hater <laughs> of marmite although i assume it's the former Indeed. um talking about scale I, I think there are different ways to think about your question damien um in many respects, Unilever is now five businesses in one um, because we reorganized our business last year um, into sort of five very much kind of category-focused business groups. Um, so you've got a beauty and well-being business uh, with brands like Dermalogica, lots of prestige brands, um, uh, kind of uh, sort of liquid IV, for example. You've got a kind of a personal care business with sort of deodorants, skin cleansing, so um, Lifebuoy and Dove. Um, You've got a home care business um, with brands like Comfort, Purcell, as you say, Sif, Domestos. Um, a nutrition business with brands like um, sort of Hellman's and Knorr. And then an ice cream business with brands like Magnum, Cornetto, Ben & Jerry's. And actually, when you think about it, the communications and corporate affairs challenges, which even those five different businesses 
business groups were dealing with if they were standalone separate businesses yes. would actually be quite vast. They'd be massive anyway. And so when you think about bringing that together under sort of one roof, obviously it is a very sort of diverse um, uh, you know, set of challenges we face, but a huge amount of opportunity within that. In terms of how we organise, I think, I think there's sort of two, two axes upon which we organise the, the, the team. One is through those business groups I just described. Because mm. um, obviously the, the business group presidents need a communications and corporate affairs team uh, who are you know, working on the priorities for that business group. But ultimately, Unilever shows up in our, in our countries, right? You know, yeah. it's ultimately in our countries where, where trust is ultimately built, um, where we need to be, have proximity with our stakeholders. We need to understand the local con context and local landscape. And so around sort of 70%, I would say, of our, of our um, team uh, is focused on, you know, managing our communications and corporate affairs agenda on the ground. In the countries, in those not not every single we don't have somebody in every single uh, one of those 190 countries. Sure. I should add, um, but we have that spread and that coverage across the piece. How do you attract and retain talent? We spend a lot of time thinking about that question, Annabelle. Um, Unilever is a very attractive employer, actually, through the sustainable business um, positioning and success that we've had. So in the I think we are now the employer of choice for graduates in 16 out of our 20 largest markets. So irrespective of what's happening in the communications and corporate affairs agenda, so, you know, Unilever continues to be a very attractive place, mm -hmm. um, you know, for people who want to apply. I think, you know, the, the, we literally get millions of applications uh, as a business every, every year. Now, from a more from a functional perspective in terms of uh, our team, I think there, there, there are a few things. One is the... Um, it's the breadth of the different experiences that you can get working in communications, corporate affairs at Unilever. You know, we really do. We were talking about it earlier the this, sheer this scale of the business, the 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 complexity of some of the challenges, which are absolutely fascinating. You know, to be de to be dealing with on a uh, you know on on a daily basis. Uh, alongside that, the proximity that we can offer to um, you know, business leaders, you know, we, we try to be as proximate, not only to our stakeholders, you know, externally, but really close to the business, make sure we really understand what's happening and, and how can we, and advising the business accordingly. So really offering that kind of proximity and then that sort of in almost that sort of a front row seat to, um, the workings of a major, um, global organization, which, um, is really trying to do something I think very exciting and inspirational. Um, you know, in the world, which is all about, you know, trying to deliver superior performance by being a kind of sustainable business. So, and then alongside that, of course, you need to, to provide, you know, a great working experience, you know, the, the, the sort of the, 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 the nuts and bolts, you know, um, you know, a great environment, you know, I think we, we spent, we put a lot of effort and time into kind of trying to build collaboration and connectivity across the, across the function um, and uh, increasing focus on just the capabilities agenda too, which um, there's a lot of hunger and thirst for you know, across the team. Um, let's just talk about sustainability a bit, um, because Unilever is rightly famous for its uh, position on sustainability and how it's built sustainability into its business plan uh, in a very authentic way. Um, but it's obviously such a big topic, not just for Unilever, but for business in general and uh, obviously in the political and consumer world. Unilever, as I say, has been a real, famously, a, a real leader uh, in this field over a long time. Um, 
one might say uh, you've struck quite a courageous position as a company, a, particularly a big multinational, in being such in being such a leader. Uh, but mainly because obviously when you take leadership position, you become a target, and when things go wrong, you do get a lot of criticism potentially. Uh, as a company, when you do that, looking back in your experience, would you say that you know the company's approach on sustainability and its quite campaigning position has been worth it? Have 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 stakeholders benefited overall? Would you say? L- let me start by answering that question, Damien, by trying to explain what we what we are trying to achieve. So uh, we have a very firm belief that adopting a sustainable business model um, uh, over the long term, a model which sort of serves kind of multiple stakeholders, is one which will deliver better business performance. The reason we are, the reason where we've gone down this path is a belief that it will de- deliver what's or winning performance. Yeah, we we define that in our communications as really sort of delivering kind of consistent and competitive growth, so driving you know top third shareholder returns. So it's it's in, it's entirely kind of commercially driven, and I think you know at times you know we've had to reinforce the fact you know our CEO has said it many times, Alan. You know Unilever is not an NGO; uh, it's a business f- focused on delivering you know great winning performance and shareholder returns as a result. Now, what in terms of your question, I think. You know that rec- means that we have to be very um, clear about the business be- business benefits of sustainability, um, and we think there are four kind of key uh, benefits in sort of headline terms, uh, which are incredibly compelling. Um, we believe in the growth opportunity uh, from uh, the brands, which are really adopts the purpose now purpose has become one of those words which you know i think has um mm. diff- pe- people interpret different things from it but what do we really mean by it we mean uh, that it's a brand uh, that is uh, taking action on an environmental or social cause talking about how it's doing so um and in doing so kind of building real kind of resonance and relevance with the consumers consumers who are increasingly expecting brands to do exactly that um and we are noticing, and we're we are very um, reassured by the growth trajectory of our brands, which have done that really, really well. Um, whether that's kind of Hellman's and its fight against uh, food waste, whether it's sort of Ben and Jerry's, whether it's Dove, which is I think the iconic example of a successful, purposeful brand. And you know, the data for us is very clear. You know, those brands are growing faster and you know, winning, mar- winning, mar- you know, winning market share, which is a um, key message for 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 investors, isn't it? Precisely. So now, at the same time, uh, perhaps an area where, which we haven't got quite right in the past uh, was the fact that in our enthusiasm for brand purpose, we maybe under-communicated the importance or the other elements um, of what makes a successful brand. So, you know, great innovation, um, you know, it's got to be available, um, you know, it's got to perform well, it's got to be at the right price point, all those other really important parts of building a really successful brand. Perhaps we didn't speak enough of, uh, you know, a few years ago, which in some ways I think made people think that the only thing Unilever cares about is brand purpose. That's not the case. Obviously, we need to do that when we're investing behind, you know, our innovation, you know, um, uh, for example. So, but for making kind of um, a belief that, that that's going to be an important uh, 
part of Unilever's growth story in the future, um, we are we are very confident. So that's growth. And we've got kind of cost. Um, you know, we're confident that our sustainable business agenda uh, is driving cost out of um, our business. So uh, to give you an example on, on that, uh, I think since 2008, we've kind of saved over kind of 1.3 billion euros uh, on, you know, just energy efficiency measures measures alone. Alongside we're kind of mitigating risk, 40% of our uh, kind of manufacturing sites are in water sort of stressed areas. And so surely it makes complete sense for us to be thinking about water stewardship programs, mm. um, you know, in the areas where we're operating, because how are we going to be able to make our products if we can't access the water? I mean, I think that that, that, that strikes me as being just like good common sense, let alone anything else. And then, as I said, I said you mentioned, I said to you a second ago that um, uh, the the how it's enabling us to prove to be a kind of a magnet for talent is also another kind of key business benefit from that. As I said, so sixteen out of our twenty top markets, we're now the FMCG kind of employer of choice. Yeah. So we feel that we feel, we feel that's, that that's very compelling. Um, let me stop there and let you follow up. Yeah, no. Um, what I was going what I was going to say. <laughs> Uh, was listening to you on that. Um, it, it, it should make it really clear to a lot of companies and a lot of other people in communications who are grappling with uh, sustainability and ESG um, and how they get it right. I think it's really clear and it gives them a really clear idea of just how big a, you know, um, not, a, not a problem, but how big an opportunity it is if you get it right. But to get it right, you've got to make it part of the business. It's got to be. Yeah. It's got to drive the business to make it authentic, and then you've got to be able to measure it, haven't you? And you've, yes. you've got to be able to prove your actions are yes. actually making a difference to all these different stakeholders. Yes. And I think a lot of companies get that completely wrong. And this is why I think maybe, to a degree, some of the ESG sustainability stuff does have a bad uh, reputation because of greenwashing, etc. Well, I think one of the challenges is that sort of purpose, sustainability, and ESG have kind of all become quite conflated, haven't they? I'm, they not, have. I'm not quite sure um, that we all understand each other when yeah. we talk about it. I mean, from Unilever's perspective, you know, the purpose is really kind of why we exist. Um, sustainable business is ultimately about how we secure our sort of long-term success and when you really strip it back. Um, and ESG is just how investors um, integrate, you know, non-financial risks and opportunities, right? Um, but just those three words i think have become quite confusing and quite conflated in this in in the debate um but you are right that um what really matters is that we deliver on ultimately the the ultimate objective which is which is driving you know better business performance but also through you know the commitments that we've made uh on a wide range of uh, important sustainability topics, which are material to Unilever, yeah. um, and as you say, sort of greenwashing uh, is, you know, uh, is of course a concern. I, ultimately, I think though that uh, the greater demands for for companies to be transparent will, over time, result in that being less of a concern than um, uh, than they might be today, yes. because that that, yeah. that is a trend which is only yeah. which is only kind of getting more important. Yes. Uh, transparency tends to um, persuade companies to to obsess about targets in in my in my experience, and they seem to think targets are the be all and end all rather than ac actions. Would that be fair? Do you think? I mean, is there a problem with that? We become a target obsessed sort of 
sustainability ESG world rather than mm. really fo- focusing much more on, okay, tell us what you've done and, and prove it. Yes. I think it's an interesting um, shift that's happened over the last few years, Damien. Um, there was a period of time when it felt like you woke up to the morning newspapers and another company had set out, set up another set of sustainability commitments um, my sense is that those days are slightly behind us because now the com- companies are now working towards delivering against those commitments rather than shaping the commitments right. because everyone's made that commitment. yeah exactly so it's now about it's now about delivering against them and i think what's interesting is that yes there is um, a demand to understand how companies are performing um, at the same time or alongside that um, there's real interest in sort of getting underneath the bonnet and understanding well actually how our companies doing that, you know, sort of lifting that. So what we try and do increasingly is kind of really lift the bonnet and yeah. talk about, well, actually, what does it take uh, to, you know, um, you know, drive the circular economy in terms of our plastic packaging agenda, for example, or, and so on and so forth. So uh, a bit more kind of explanation around actually, what does this really take rather than, you know, using the commitment as the communications moment and then, and leaving it there. And there seems to be, there seems to be real interest in, uh, you know, companies sharing those stories. You mentioned adopting a localised approach across your different markets. And I mean, Unilever's scale is obviously can make a huge difference in impacts. And I just wondered how the company decides on what elements to focus on and, and what programmes to support and how you measure that impact. Yeah, that's a really good question, Annabelle. I mean, I think that it's very easy when you're in a global role to shape kind of global priorities which then sort of get cascaded to use that awful word down to a local (laughs) market but actually the world doesn't really work like that as i said earlier because you know the context in different countries is different and ultimately i think you can have three different sets of different priorities you do we do have a global set of corporate affairs priorities you know um on uh how we're trying to sort of you know um, shift towards net zero on our plastics agenda you know tackling kind of um, plastic plastic waste on how do we sort of create a kind of a living wage um you know in in, in our value chain and on the sort of the nature and sort of the nature agenda too and so they are kind of you know cross-cutting global corporate affairs priorities that mm. you know, we are sort of actively driving but then you can also have like regional priorities so we've done a huge amount of work over the course of uh the last 18 months at a european level uh on you know making sure that the threat of effectively the uh, ban on animal testing on cosmetics is it, it is um, strengthened. There, there, there was a risk through the, the European Chemicals Agency was look, looking at almost like diluting uh, that ban and res- that which would have resulted in Unilever having to kind of effectively start to test um, uh, on animals again for its cosmetics, which obviously is not the last thing we want to be doing. So we spent a lot of time at a European level, you know, working with other NGOs to uh, drive you know, um, through the European um, Citizens Initiative, a, a kind of a reappraisal of that, you know, um, which which is now sort of sitting with the European Commission. But then you have deeply local priorities. You have priorities which, for example, in India, we spend a lot of time on the sanitation and hygiene agenda. Um, and the work that our team is doing in India, um, you know, through what we call our Suvida, Suvida centres, and they are centres which, you know, we've worked with the local munis- municipalities to, build and to uh, provide for um, people for very impoverished people in, in India who are um, uh, you know who don't have access to hygiene sanitation and the I think this, the the skill is in recognizing and and sh- I should also add that you know that's not a 
that you know those sous vide centers are um, exclusive currently to India, and so the I think the 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 skill is in recognizing the flexibility that's required, the flexibility in the framework, so that yes, we will we will continue to progress our global global priorities, but we need to leave space, mm. um, you know, for our country teams to be working on the uh, those kind of priorities which are more local by nature and which don't necessarily need a global you know, a global kind of uh, uh, approach. Are you optimistic about how the sustainability and ESG agenda is going generally, or do you share fears about greenwashing? Well, I think the sort of directional travel is clear, ultimately, you know, kind of consumers want businesses to be more sustainable. We talked about, you know, the impact we're seeing from, uh, you know, our brands who are, who have really kind of gripped that agenda. Uh, you know, governments are obviously, you know, regulating um, you know, in this space as well. Investors are mandating that we're becoming more sustainable. You know, sort of transition action plans, our kind of climate transition action plan is, you know, increasingly becoming an expectation, not an exception. Um, and so ultimately, I think kind of companies who kind of ignore those trends will, uh, you know, they will face greater regulatory pressure, greater investor pressure, greater kind of consumer pressure over time. So when you kind of take a step back, um, I do feel kind of, optimistic in terms of the fact that you know the you know this agenda is one which is here to stay um, and as I said we feel very kind of confident in it. at the same time though I think it's one of the interesting dynamics that we're seeing is and we mentioned it a second ago around this kind of conflation of mm. ESG purpose sustainability there is sort of a uh, I sometimes worry that um, purpose or ESG are kind of being kind of pulled into the culture wars a bit um, mm. we see this um, uh, a bit in, I think, in the US, UK, and sort of Brazil, where we kind of we're taking a look at the this question. You know, is this actually happening? And we do see sort of evidence of that. How does that um, manifest itself? Um, well, it, it it the the phrase that it manifests itself through is woke business. I think, um, and you know, you see this phrase, you know, sort of bandied around, um, and, and it comes to a sort of a question around. The difference between being skeptical and cynical, I think. Um, I think it's good that um, you know companies are kept on their toes. That they are that there is a degree of skepticism, and that companies have to earn the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, through consistency of delivery and action on on oh, this, this this range of um, different sort of sustainability agendas. But I think that's different to sort of cynicism, uh, where. I get concerned about ultimately like the weaponization of the sustainable business movement in a broader kind of cultural. Mm. That's really interesting because it, it leads into a, another question I was going to ask you about the media and the extent to which the media, in your experience, is the media becoming more cynical about the world of what, what you are trying to do or what companies are trying to do in sustainability? Um, I think, I mean, different media, I think, look at this. Um, Quite differently. I mean, like, if you think about what the FT have done on some moral money, for example, I think that's a really, really impressive, you know, um, piece of kind of journalism around um, uh, on on all the different dimensions and aspects mm. of sustainable business. I think sort of what Tortoise have done, um, you know, with their responsible business index. Um, again, you know, they've really sort of invested behind this. And but there are the, there are the media outlets who, who who look at it, I think, slightly differently. Um, the say do gap between what companies are yeah. saying they're mm -hmm. doing and what actually they are doing in practice i think there is that is 
under greater scrutiny. But I don't see that as cynicism. I see that as no, that's a legitimate that's a legitimate question, thing. right? Absolutely you know, right. I, I think that I think that's that's yeah. fair game. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are pockets of the media, um, and don't ask me uh, <laughs> uh, who <laughs> name names. Yes, exactly. Um, who are yeah, they're more, more cynical than others. Let me put it. But it doesn't stop you achieving what you want to achieve as a business, as a sustainably led business. No, because we no, of course not, because we believe it's the right thing. Do investors understand the importance of sustainability in ESG and, and how difficult has it been communicating these issues to them? And some have been quite critical of the company's sustainability focus. Yeah. Um, so I think most, of, well, I should start by saying I'm, I don't do investor relations. That's not part of my part of my gig. We have a very, we have an excellent investor relations team. Uh, although I spend a lot of time with them uh, <laughs> because of the obvious, um, you know, kind of uh, shared agenda that we have. Um but uh, I think if you were to ask them, uh, they would say that actually most investors kind of understand our focus on on this agenda um, and are supportive. Um, you know, BlackRock, for example, and our largest shareholder, they've you know a huge focus on climate, and so you know they support our climate transition action plan. Or we have sort of regular dialogue. You know, Aviva, who are very interested in sort of living wages, um, energy, on nutrition standards, and so yeah, the quality of the dialogue that we have. With our investors on this is, um, you know, I think it's very good. But you know, as, as, as I was saying earlier, you know, ultimately they all expect, um, you know, um, financial performance and shareholder returns to come through as a result of it, and that, that's ultimately the proof of the pudding. Okay, let's just move the conversation on a bit from sustainability uh, in its purest form. Reputation is something we talk a lot about. Uh, it's a big issue for all companies. Reputation is often quoted as a company's most important asset. Um, talk us through some of the most challenging reputational events in your time at Unilever and, and what you've learned uh, about handling crisis and issues. I'm thinking here about things like the putative Kraft Heinz bid, the GSK consumer healthcare offer, corporate relocation. We had the Panorama show the other evening about what were your tea plantations. I know you've sold them uh, since. Um, succession um talk us through some of the some of the um i was going to say low lights but uh mm. <laughs> talk mm. us through some of the challenges and what you've learned thank you for reminding me of those some of those damien the um the, the first six months of last year i think were you know particularly kind of lively if i could put it that way we had uh, one of our sort of um you know an important investor you know criticizing unilever saying it kind of lost a plot uh, then we had sort of the gsk uh, consumer health of offer, as you um, rightly remind me, uh, there was sort of you know activism, shareholder activism um, happening. Obviously, sort of war in Ukraine. We had some ongoing ongoing dispute, which has now been settled with Ben and Jerry's uh, and the independent board. And uh, what it was sort of less um, noticeable to the outside world, but internally, we were going through a once in a generation reorganisation of the company. And so, you know, when there was a a very Busy and challenging. Um, sets you know f first six months of twenty twenty two, and I probably won't get into the in the individual learnings of each of those incidents, as if I could call them that. Um, uh, but maybe if I could answer it in terms of how do I think about it from more of a kind of personal personal perspective and more from a operational perspective. I think from a personal perspective, when you're in those really kind of intense periods. Um, you have a kind of almost a responsibility to stay really calm, um, a responsibility to stay calm in terms of that, not letting um, your judgment be clouded 
but also from ensuring that the leadership shadow that you cast to your team and to those around you is one of, you know, a kind of inner calmness. I think that's really, really important. Uh, one way of doing that, the second point I think is around man- managing your energy because often these are, they, 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 when these things blow up, it feels like a sprint, but it's often actually a marathon, right? You know, these things can last for quite a long time. And just making sure that you are kind of managing your energy, just some really kind of basic things, um, you know, kind of getting some sleep, um, you know, eating well. It's just some of the basics I think are really, really important to yeah. see yourself through some of those really intense um, periods of time. And then um, uh, one of my kind of former colleagues, um, their, their words of advice always sort of ring in my ears in these times, which um, uh, she, she, she used to say, look, you know, ultimately this is about, this is PR, not ER. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, just, you know, I don't want to sound kind of glib, um, but I'm just making sure that you keep everything in perspective um, is really, really important too. Um, now, kind of operationally, if I think about some of those more kind of challenging times, um, I think it's really important to be clear on what it is you're trying to achieve um, because things will change in a dynamic situation by by their very nature. And so being clear about what your strategy is, what, where are your red lines? Um, and you know, being and having that understanding in the business around what that looks like is really, really important. Um, I think the as another learning would be that is the importance of building relationships in peacetime. Um, a lot internally, of, uh, or... I'll come on to internally in a second, um, but more externally. I mean, not the hard work that happens around some of these things is often actually done before they happen um, because you have the quality of the relationships with. The multiple multiple different stakeholders whether that you know wh- whoever they might be so that you can which enables you to explain um to engage um and to kind of reset if that's required um and then i think you know, I, I i think internally is important too because you know when the business is going through some of those types of crises if i could call them that um what isn't seen in the outside world but is what's happening in, in the inside world which is lots of people wanting, you know, who care deeply about a company, wanting to understand what's actually happening. Happening, And so making sure that the internal communications um, is good, that it's explaining, you know, what's happened, that, you know, you, you the employee base are informed and um, that, you know, they themselves can um, explain to their communities, you know, actually what, what's happened is actually kind of important too. And I th- sometimes I think in the intensity of the moment the external agenda obviously kind of dominates but you can never let lose sight of the importance of you know bringing your own organization and people um kind of with you as you go through some of those tougher times just looking more generally around you um as a corporate affairs corporate comms leader generally speaking i mean do you think management and boards fully grasp reputation management and the role that people like you play in their businesses? Well, I, let me answer Are that. you really um, appreciated, I think, is what uh, <laughs> And is that important? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, the, let me just answer that from the perspective of Unilever because I, I wouldn't want to speak for other companies. Um, look, Unilever, as I said, is ultimately a kind of a marketing and communication company. We're, brand, we're company brands, right? And, you know, our leadership, you know, many of them have come up through brand management and are, I think by the nature of the leadership qualities that are required to, uh, you know, be a very senior leader at Unilever, you know, they have a sort of natural affinity with, you know, reputation, communications. And, you know, I, I learned a huge amount from our 
from you know from Alan our CEO and from our our Exco and just in terms of how they communicate they are um you know they they're all kind of very strong at it, very strong at it uh and in terms of that sort of that appreciation I I don't I don't think it's about appreciation I think it's about do they kind of value um what we are delivering as as a team and as a function and that then brings me to the point around proximity because we have corporate affairs or leaders on sort of the you know the 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 leadership teams or the business groups um of you know like kind of key functional teams uh, and are they're you know very very um have a strong kind of profile and presence in our countries um because of the the value that i think we're offering as a function um you know in managing so many of the dynamics that we've already discussed so from a unilever perspective yeah i do think it's a company which um you know does understand the importance of it that's not to say we always get it right of course that's that's a separate mm. thing um but you know there's um uh, interest concern and care over how we think about you know decisions from a, through a reputation lens we mentioned earlier at the top of the show you were a journalist i was a journalist do you think journalists make good comms people generally i mean i think there's some brilliant comms people um who were journalists right you know some absolutely some brilliant communications experts but I don't think it's a prerequisite um, to be a brilliant comms person that you have to be a journalist. Um, and, you know, I've seen some journalists who try communications and actually just don't get on with it at all and kind of move back to journalism or go and do other things. Um, from my own perspective, I, f- I feel as if starting off as a journalist, moving to an agency before going in-house, I think that helped that transition uh, just because I think the world of agency is a tiny bit more like journalism than the in-house can be at times uh, if that, i don't know if you agree with that yeah um, definitely, um, definitely and um if i was to be provocative i would say that i suspect far more journalists make good comms people than comms people would make good journalists <laughs> that's a, i like that answer <laughs> i like that answer and what are the best and worst parts about the job um let me start with the best um I think it's a diversity in the dynamism of, of of all the different challenges. You are sort of intellectually stimulated a huge amount just by um, uh, by, by the role. Um, I think it's about the impact that you can have and the ability to sort of you know shape important agendas. Um, I said earlier that it's you know sort of every day feels different. I think if I was to talk about what's worst about the job, sometimes it's a bit annoying to be at the mercy of external forces. I don't know if you find that, um, but every so often... That's you, what it, makes it fun as well, it, I guess. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> that, what, precisely. So, you know, every so often when you're on holiday, you know, you kind of, you look at your emails and you're just hoping and praying, like, please, please, <laughs> please, uh, just let it be another quiet day. Um, so maybe that is, again, but again, you can't have it both both ways. You can't sort of um, enjoy the uh, that sort of dynamic environment at the same time, you know only want it when uh you yes, know you're, when, it's you're, when, when it's convenient to you so um yeah i guess that comes with the territory and in your view what makes a great head of comms or corporate affairs and, and what do they bring to a company i think that's a really good question which i should have been sort of involved in a very peripherally i should say a bit of some thinking on um i don't know if you know um uh, the ithaca center um who have been trying to codify i think the qualities of a corporate affairs leader, um, Alex Cole, um, who's been sort of leading this thinking. And they've kind of found a framework, which I think is really helpful. Um, It kind of starts with the personal kind of qualities that a corporate affairs leader needs in terms of sort of things like intellectual agility, kind of EQ, 
the kind of the core qualities that you know a, a corporate first leader needs to bring in terms of you know an understanding of the sub disciplines if i could call it that of corporate affairs um the the people management that comes with this sort of the strategic element that comes with it and then i think increasingly importantly more at the business end of um their thinking is you know the ability to challenge um you know to um intervene uh when 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 you see something happening which you know holding up the mirror you know to use that yeah. phrase the kind of the commerciality that you need to bring to an organization and then acting as a a change catalyst you know sort of change maker as well so rather than sort of um um uh, me try and redefine actually what i think some really nice piece of work by the ethical team i've just sort of um, plagiarize instead <laughs> and uh, share, share how they th mm. they think about it and yeah. and, and we're uh, as a kind of a function i'm kind of using that to think about the capabilities agenda the leadership agenda for our own team at unilever because i think there's some really interesting spaces for us to get into in terms of how do we build the muscle of the function mm. looking at it through you know those different dimensions we've talked a lot about scale um and um because of um also, what Unilever does, uh, what your stance is on issues such as sustainability. Inevitably, Unilever ultimately, I guess, does become quite a political beast in not just the UK and say the Netherlands, where your where your foundation countries are, but you know all over the world potentially, given that you you operate all over the world. How do you how do you feel politics and business mix best? How do you to manage your approach to yeah. politics. Yeah. Um, well, there's kind of big P and small P, isn't there, yeah, yes. as well? And um, one thing I should say at the beginning is like, you know, we do nothing which is sort of party political, you know, um, very, very, very important kind of code principle that we have at Unilever. Uh, ultimately, I think um, there is incredible opportunity in the collaboration that can come um, uh, when business mm. and politics works together. Um, ultimately, you know, often on a sort of common objective. So, you know, businesses need governments to create the right enabling environment. Um, and at the same time, governments kind of need um, businesses to kind of obviously leverage the strengths uh, of business to turn policy into action a lot of the time. So I think where the real magic happens is where, the, is where there's a sort of a shared agenda and so business can bring what it does best and governments can uh, do what they do best and create an enabling environment for a problem to be solved. I, I think the best example of that was obviously around kind of you know the pandemic and actually when you think when you take a step back mm. you know what business how businesses work with governments not just in the uk but i think in many other countries you know kind of ultimately keeping uh citizens employees safe you know keeping products moving you know um in a sort of very difficult sort of circumstances um obviously the covid19 vaccine you know the kind of shining example of um of, of that as well uh but also um increasingly i think you know that how uh, the the innovation agenda uh, speaking slightly more kind of um, in from a UK perspective I think the innovation agenda is feeling like really an interesting space at the moment where you know there's a lot of interest a lot of focus on it from both the kind of government and business perspective in terms of what can more can we do to make the UK an innovative innovative, innovative company and mm -hmm. you know if you kind of get that collaboration right then you can see how kind of great things will will happen as a result what's the best bit of advice you've ever been given well that's okay that's a good question so um, we took, we spoke earlier about, um, uh, my first boss, um, who was, the, you know, the editor, uh, of the Express and Echo. And I remember him saying once, which had a real impact on me, potentially only because it, it was only two words of advice, which was kind of back yourself. And I've, that's always kind of carried with me. Um, 
And I think why I find I found it helpful is a you know have confidence, but more importantly, that when you are wanting to when you're thinking about taking opportunities, um, backing yourself to do them results in you going into spaces which will challenge you. Um, and it's in those times when you will probably get your most sort of growth and development. And there've been one or two, you know, kind of, uh, you know, crossroads, certainly in my career where I thought, oh, I'm not really sure I fancy that, you know, that looks a bit too difficult. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm gonna sort of uh, sink or swim in that situation. And, uh, you know, those kind of back yourself words have kind of, you know, kind of slightly mm. kind of rung in my ears as much from the perspective of, well, actually, if, you know, what, what will you, not, it's not about whether you'd be successful or not, but what will you learn and how will you kind of progress and develop as a result? And so uh, I think that's probably been the best bit of advice that I've kind of carried around, you know, pretty much from, from day one. And who have been your mentors in your career? Yeah, well, I, I, I feel very fortunate. There are sort of lots of people who I've had the um, benefit of um, learning, learning from. Um, uh, Trevor Gorin, I don't know if you remember Trevor Gorin. I do, yes. Um, Damien yes, Hume I do, was Trevor, the remember head Trevor, of yeah. uh, media relations for Unilever for many years. He sadly passed away a few years ago. Uh, but he was my boss when I first joined Unilever. And uh, he was an immensely um, uh, effective uh, kind of media relations leader. I mean, he was, uh, I, I still haven't seen anyone better um, in, all, in all my time, but he was also incredibly generous with his wisdom you know he really was sort of a felt like working for the oracle at times um and so he was a real kind of mentor for me at the beginning of my unilever career um in more kind of recent times i had the incredible kind of privilege and benefit of working for sue garrard um who was you know in many respects one of the sort of the titans of the you know the communications corporate affairs industry for many many years and um uh, i learned a huge amount from sue uh who was as i say just you know an exceptional leader um in our yeah, profession and agreed. You know, rightly rightly recognized as such slightly daunting to uh, take over from her yeah teams. um you're doing okay well i mean <laughs> uh, and, and if i am it's it's, it's much you know through you know what i learned from the likes of sue and trevor along the way um and there've been lots of others who have kind of you know sort of uh you know a quick kind of a check-in with him every so often to you know get get some advice and <laughs> see how see how they hear how they see the world is all, all, also kind of very um helpful too so now i'm 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 I feel very fortunate there are lots of people who I can call on for uh, a friendly chat every so often. So, final question. If you weren't head of communications at Unilever, um, would, do you have a dream job that you that you would love to do that, you know, absolutely doesn't have to be in communications? We've had some interesting answers yeah, to this. Go on. Park Ranger was Park uh, Ranger. Is a particularly okay. good one. Um, um, yes. Well, uh, I know I know mine. Go on, what's yours? I would love to be, if I wasn't doing this job, uh, I quite often think my dream job would be driving a rural community bus right. in the countryside. Why? Just pottering around in my bus, yeah. helping people. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Going from A to B, maybe to C, in the countryside, lovely, you know, lovely um, yeah. views and all the rest of it. You yeah. know, somewhere somewhere like somewhere like the um, you know, the the Yorkshire Dales or the Lakes. Very nice. Gorgeous. I could do that what happily. About, what about you, Annabelle? What about me? I've, I'd always, I've always loved the idea of being a Strictly Come Dancing professional dancer. Oh. Yes. I love the glitter. <laughs> I can uh, reassure you that, that I, I will not be joining you in your uh, uh, dream job. And thank you for um, filling the time while I think of mine. Um, do you know what? I think, I think it's, um, I think I'd love to have been an architect. Ah. Um, 
but I would never want to have lived in a house which I had the responsibility for designing because <laughs> uh, it probably would have fallen uh, flat, flat on me. I was not a great, um, not great at kind of physics or design, um, uh, you know, going mm. through education. But I just think the the satisfaction you must get from, yes. you know, you know, designing something which just looks really cool is incredibly functional in terms of how it's been designed. And just, you know, just walking past an incredible building every day and going, yep, that, I did that. Uh, that I think that'd be quite, that'd be quite a satisfying, quite, quite a satisfying job. But um, mm. there is zero chance of me ever changing careers towards that, um, mainly for health and safety reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Paul, thank you very much for your company today uh, and your uh, fascinating insights. You've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with myself, Damien Rees, and my co-host today, Annabelle Duke. Annabelle, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's been great to hear your story. Our guest today has been Paul Matthews, Head of Communications at Unilever. Join us again for our next episode uh, of Spin Unspun. Details at instinctive.com. Find us on social media on the usual channels. And if you'd like to get in touch about Spin Unspun, just drop me a line, damien.reese at instinctive.com.